Good evening. Biden declares an end to America's longest war. The officer who shot Dante Wright is arrested for manslaughter as families speak out. In the trial of former officer Derek Chauvin, a witness pleads the fifth. A defense witness says George Floyd died from a combination of factors and a retired judge discovers discusses the law. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, April 14th, 2021. President Joe Biden said Wednesday he'll withdraw remaining United States troops from the forever war in Afghanistan, declaring that the September 11th terror attacks of 20 years ago cannot justify America's forces still dying in the nation's longest war. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, with our military leaders and intelligence personnel, with our diplomats and our development experts, with the Congress and the vice president, as well as with Mr. Ghani and many others around the world, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. His plan is to pull out all American forces, numbering 2,500 now by this September 11th, the anniversary of the attacks, which were coordinated from Afghanistan. Soon after Biden made his announcement, NATO chiefs Jen Stoltenberg in Brussels said the alliance has agreed to remove 7,000 of its forces from Afghanistan, matching Biden's decision to begin a final pullout by May 1st. Biden says it's the end of America's wars without end. We already have service members doing their duty in Afghanistan today whose parents served in the same war. We have service members who are not yet born when our nation was attacked in 9-11. War in Afghanistan was never meant to be a multi-generational undertaking. We were attacked. We went to war with clear goals. We achieved those objectives. Bin Laden is dead and al-Qaeda is degraded in Iraq in Afghanistan. And it's time to end the forever war. The drawdown will begin rather than conclude on May 1st, which has been the deadline for full withdrawal under a peace agreement the Trump administration reached with the Taliban last year. Biden's announcement, which he followed with a visit to Arlington National Cemetery, marks perhaps the most significant foreign policy decision in the early going of his presidency. But Republican Senator Lindsey Graham says withdrawing all U.S. troops comes with clear risks and Biden should should reverse the withdrawal. I believe if we leave Afghanistan under the path charted by President Biden, the government will deteriorate rapidly. People will go back to their corners. The Taliban will gain strength in the south and the central government in Kabul will lose its ability to effectively manage the country. It's tenuous already. What do we lose by pulling out? We lose that insurance policy against another 9-11. Afghanistan has been a platform where we can monitor what's going on in Iran and other places. We lose all that. What do we gain? We gain the idea that the war is now over and Joe Biden ended the longest war in American history. With all due respect to President Biden, you have not ended the war. You've extended it. You have made it bigger, not smaller. You're going to do to us what you did in Iraq. General Alston, who was in charge of Iraq, now Secretary of Defense, advised Vice President Biden and President Obama to leave a residual force somewhere around 20,000. Vice President Biden argued for zero. Eventually it went to zero and the rest is history. ISIS formed 
And if you've ever been around the Yazidi people, you know how dangerous that was. While Biden's decision keeps U.S. forces in Afghanistan for months longer than initially planned, it sets a firm end to two decades of war that killed more than 2,200 U.S. troops, wounded 20,000, and cost as much as $1 trillion. And back in the United States, protests continued last night in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, where hundreds of demonstrators again gathered at Brooklyn Center's heavily guarded police headquarters, now ringed by concrete barriers and a tall metal fence, and where police and riot gear and National Guard soldiers stood watch. On Sunday, a local officer, Kim Potter, shot and killed a 20-year-old black man who had been pulled over for driving without tags and with an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror. The shooting was called an accident by the former police chief, Tim Gannon, who resigned along with Officer Potter yesterday. Today, Potter was arrested and charged with second-degree manslaughter. The former Brooklyn Center police chief has said that Potter, a 26-year veteran and training officer, meant to pull her taser but fired her handgun instead. Responding to the arrest of Potter, a news conference was held with Reverend Al Sharpton of the National Action Movement and attorney Ben Crump. Sharpton says the charges facing Potter is not enough, but better than nothing. What are your thoughts? I would have liked to see more, but I've seen so many cases, some standing right here that got nothing. And I think the fact that she has been charged is better than we get in New York sometimes. But it's not what we feel is just, which is why we want federal laws. There was videotape on Rodney King 30 years ago. It's not just the tape. I think after George Floyd and Ben Crump and I talk about it all the time, when they saw as many whites as blacks out there marching, they knew that they could no longer cover this up. One thing I saw in the George Floyd situation, the Derek Chauvin trial that I would not seen, is policemen got on the stand and testified against him. The blue wall of silence was pierced in Minneapolis. I want to continue to see that happen. The mother of Eric Garner, killed in a police chokehold on Staten Island, joined several others and other family members of notable victims of police violence. Carr said the Wright family shouldn't let anyone tell them how long to grieve. In my son's case, I didn't get a day in court, only a departmental trial, which was not enough. That's why I fight. I fight so hard. I don't only fight for my child. I fight for everyone's child. Because either knock on any one of your door any day, but you got to be prayed up. you got to be ready. You have to have an arm to lean on. So lean on God's everlasting arm. And don't forget, he is always on the throne. He's the one who sits high and looks low. So no one, don't even think that you are alone. But you know, grieve like you want to. Don't let anyone tell you how to grieve, how long to grieve, and when to stop grieving. You do that yourself, and that's what we all had to do for ourselves. Gwen Carr is the mother of Eric Garner. Attorney Crump was asked if the charges against former Officer Potter are enough. He says not by a long shot. What are your thoughts? That we should give this officer a pass, even though... Their nephew is gone forever. His baby is going to grow up fatherless. 
Think about how hard a black male child has it in America already. Now add on to that that he's going to have to grow up without his father. And so when we talked to his parents, they did ask those questions. How much time can she get? And it, it is unfair. Let, let's just be honest about it. That's right. It's very unfair. Obviously, they are glad she got charged. That's more than Leslie or Sequel or Gwen got. But they do hope and pray for a day that we will get equal justice, just like our white brothers and sisters. Why should we always get uh, a fragment of justice? And that was Wright family attorney Ben Crump with Mothers of Victims of Police Killings. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The Minneapolis judge overseeing the Derek Chauvin trial, Judge Peter Cahill, has granted Maurice Lester Hall's motion to quash a subpoena calling for him to testify in Chauvin's murder and manslaughter trial. Hall told the judge he would not answer attorney's questions if he took the stand out of concern he might incriminate himself. You understand this is your choice, so you could disregard the advice of your attorneys if you wanted to. Yes, sir. Uh, Knowing all that, do you... You've had a chance to look at the questions that were proposed by both sides? I have. Would you be willing to answer those if I were to put you on the stand and swear you in as a witness? No, I am not. Okay, and why would you not answer those? I'm fearful of criminal charges going forward. I have open charges that's not settled yet of my personal stuff. So basically, you are invoking your Fifth Amendment right against compelled self-incrimination? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you, sir. You can have a seat. I am finding that he has uh, a complete Fifth Amendment privilege here. Uh, I had earlier said that possibly he could talk about how Mr. Floyd looked in the car, but counsel's argument is persuasive that that could provide a link. And since it's not just evidence that would incriminate a person, but also provide a link to incriminating evidence, I do find that his invocation of his Fifth Amendment rights is valid, and accordingly, I am going to quash the subpoena. Hall has been alleged to have provided drugs to George Floyd. The defense is arguing the alleged drug use may have contributed to Floyd's death as his neck was pinned under former officer Derek Chauvin's knee for nearly nine and a half minutes. Hall would be charged with murder if drugs uh, could have been charged with murder if drugs were found to have contributed to Floyd's death under Minnesota law. Floyd's ex-girlfriend, Courtney Ross, testified earlier in the trial. She and Floyd used drugs on and off throughout their three-year relationship. And in continuing testimony, the former Maryland medical examiner, Dr. David Fowler, testified it wasn't Derek Chauvin's knee that killed George Floyd, but a sudden heart rhythm disturbance as a result of heart disease. But in my opinion, Mr. Floyd had a sudden cardiac arrhythmia or cardiac arrhythmia due to his atherosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease, or you can write that down multiple different ways. Um, during his restraint and subdued by the police or restrained by the police. Um, And then his significant contributory conditions would be, since I've already put the heart disease in part one, he would have the toxicology, the fentanyl and methamphetamine. Um, There is exposure to a vehicle exhaust, so potentially carbon monoxide poisoning, 
or at least an effect from increased carbon monoxide in his bloodstream and paraganglionoma or the other natural disease process that he has. So um, all of those combined to cause Mr. Floyd's death. All right. Former Maryland medical examiner Dr. David Fowler, in an article in the New York Times today, it was revealed Dr. Fowler has testified in favor of police in a similar case in Maryland. Retired Judge Bill Blum has penned an article at theprogressive.org titled Unequal Justice, What Can We Learn from the Derek Chauvin Trial? He says the Derek Chauvin trial for murder of George Floyd is one of the most significant and high-profile legal dramas of our time. There are certain instances of police brutality that capture the public imagination and become uh, centers of media attention and therefore become the highest of high-profile trials. And the George Floyd murder trial of Derek Chauvin is one of them. And as I wrote, it reminds me so much of the Rodney King case that was tried in a California state court in 1992 relating to the 1991 arrest and savage beating of Rodney King by officers of the Los Angeles Police Department. What exactly is at the heart of what makes this such a special case in the sense that we all saw what happened like with Rodney King, we all saw what happened and the defense of the police is based on things we might not have known about what it's legal for a cop to do. What's different here is the all-out commitment of a prosecution, of a prosecutorial office to securing justice on behalf of yet another black American victim of runaway police violence. And I think this represents to some extent, an appreciable extent, a sea change in the attitude of prosecutors. You know, there are so many cases across the country where prosecutors decline even to bring charges against police officers. And you take the case of Tamir Rice, the uh, was he a, a 12 or 14 year old boy who's gunned down by a Cleveland cop when he's on the street playing with a toy gun. The first option was to shoot and kill. The um, the officers who actually testified for the prosecution saying that what Derek Chauvin did was in violation of rules, ethics, laws, one after another, they said that. That is unusual. <coughs> you know, usually you have the blue wall of silence where regardless of the facts or the merits of prosecuting the case, fellow officers don't come forward with evidence against the defendant. So that is different. I can't say that it's never happened before, but it's very unusual. Is this just fear of protests, massive protests that are beyond controllable? In the minds of everyone is that we could see massive civil unrest again, depending upon this verdict. The 
prosecution in this case has evaluated the evidence carefully and has made the correct decision to pursue murder charges against Derek Chauvin. I think that this is a righteous case and a righteous prosecution. Now, one of the things I'm wondering about is how are the jurors and the um, Chauvin trial being affected, if at all, by the latest round of unrest created by the shooting of Dante Wright just days ago. No one knows what what effect that is that going to have. The reason why it's going to be such a scary thing is because there was so much video footage of it and it's hard to lie about what people see with their own eyes. That's exactly it. If Chauvin gets off, the message is going to be don't believe your own eyes and ears. And I hope that we are able to see through that subterfuge. But I have to say, I think the defense attorney's doing his job, and he's doing a fairly good job. All he has to do is create reasonable doubt in the mind of one juror to get a hung jury. Retired Judge Bill Blum has penned an article at theprogressive.org titled Unequal Justice, What We Can Learn from the Derek Chauvin Trial. And on Tuesday, the government of Japan announced its decision to intentionally discharge directly into the Pacific Ocean one and a quarter million metric tons of radioactively contaminated wastewater, enough to fill 500 Olympic-sized swimming pools. The contaminated wastewater has accumulated over the past decade at the triple reactor meltdown site of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. It's currently contained in more than a thousand giant storage tanks on site. The dumping will begin in a couple of years and continue for decades. Kevin Camps is the radioactive waste specialist for the group Beyond Nuclear. Well, what they have there are three melted-down cores, and by pouring this large amount of water through every day in order to cool those melted cores so that they don't melt more, even deeper into the earth than they already have, it picks up all of the contamination that those cores are giving off. And one of the major isotopes of concern is called tritium, which is radioactive hydrogen, which is so small on the periodic table, the smallest element, but it is radioactive hydrogen, that they can't filter it at this industrial scale. And so they just want to dump it because they can't filter it. Their other plan was to evaporate it. So the choice that humankind faces is to breathe in this tritium, to have inhalation doses, or to eat it in seafood where it's going to bioconcentrate. That's just one isotope. There are scores of isotopes in this radioactive wastewater. They promise that they're going to get the other ones out or at least below a permissible level, which does not mean safe. But some of those other culprits include radioactive cesium-137, a muscle seeker, radioactive carbon-14, which goes anywhere in the human body that carbon goes, which is everywhere, radioactive strontium-90, which goes to bones, And they've lied about this in the past. They made it seem like it was only tritium in that wastewater that they couldn't filter, when in fact, for example, strontium-90 in some of that wastewater is 2,000-plus times too high, above permissible. And permissible is not even safe. So being outed, they were forced to say, okay, we'll filter it again and again if we have to until it falls below permissible levels. But for the tritium, there is no permissible level. They're just going to dump everything they have.
Tritium is short half-life and it's made of water anyway and it's going to mix in with the natural tritium and or, or deuterium or whatever there is in the ocean and even if people got it in their system, uh, it goes through the system very quickly because it's uh, water-soluble? Yes, yeah, some tritium will pass through the human body in a relatively short amount of time, maybe 10 days. It will do some damage while it's passing through. But there is organically bound tritium, especially if you're eating tritium that is organically bound in the flesh of fish, for example. And then it will organically bind in your body wherever hydrogen goes, which is everywhere in the human body, right down to the DNA molecule, where it can do damage to DNA molecules, other microbiological molecules, cells, tissues, and organs. It can cause cancer. It can cause birth defects. It can cause genetic damage. It can cause reproductive system damage. Even the smallest amount of radiation is considered dangerous by U.S. law, but is that's not Japanese law? They, they can do that? There is what is called permissible or allowable amounts that these agencies have decided in a cost-benefit analysis, the cost to human health, and genetics, uh, the benefit to the nuclear power industry's bottom line, and they strike these uh, compromises. And so there are very uh, similar regulations, which means, uh, you know, on the west coast of North America, where bluefin tuna from Japan actually migrate to, uh, we could be facing a similar radioactive contaminated seafood supply that is considered allowable by the U.S. government, not that they're really checking or testing the fish very closely at all. Um, we're mostly blind to how bad the contamination levels are, but then they're okay with a certain amount of health damage to the U.S. population. They've decided that's okay. It's worth the industry's profit margin. If you get injured by somebody's action, can't you sue them? A case in point just recently would be the crew of the USS Ronald Reagan, a U.S. aircraft carrier that was sent in very close to Fukushima Daiichi to assist with the post-earthquake, post-tsunami and post-triple meltdown catastrophe to provide recovery and relief. Unfortunately, they were right in the pathway of massive radiation doses coming out of that plant. And a lot of the sailors have gotten sick. Some of the sailors have died. There has been a class action lawsuit for the better part of a decade. And just in recent weeks, the U.S. federal court system told those sailors to go jump in the ocean. They're not going to get their day in court here. And if they have a problem, they should take it to Japan. So the door was slammed on these U.S. Uh, service members seeking justice and relief from the U.S. federal court system. Would you buy fish that was caught in the Pacific Ocean in two years hence? I am a vegetarian, but I do have friends and colleagues who are uh, fish eaters. And people like Arnie Gunderson at Fairwinds Energy Education has said that he will no longer eat fish from the Pacific Ocean, because remember, just the initial releases in the first weeks and months from the Fukushima Daiichi triple meltdown were massive, a massive radioactive assault on the Pacific. And it took some months or even years, but that plume reached the west coast of North America, where remarkably it doubled the radioactive cesium content in open ocean seawater. Cesium-134, which is shorter lived, cesium-137, which is longer lived, but it doubled all of the artificial cesium in the ocean, which came mostly from nuclear weapons testing in the atmosphere falling out, that was all from Fukushima. So it's already contaminated, bioaccumulating in the seafood supply. This latest blow would just be another assault on the oceans and on, on the fisheries and on the health of those who, who eat those fish. 
Kevin Camps is the radioactive waste specialist for the group Beyond Nuclear. And finally, ongoing volcanic eruptions have displaced about 20% of people in the eastern Caribbean island of St. Vincent, as the United Nations official on Wednesday warned of a growing humanitarian crisis. Between 16 to 20,000 people were evacuated under government orders before Lufthansa. La Soufrière volcano first erupted on Friday, covering the lush green island with ash that continues to blanket communities in St. Vincent, as well as Barbados and other nearby islands. About 6,000 of those evacuees are considered most vulnerable, and the United Nations resident coordinator for, said the said the United Nations resident coordinator for Barbados and the Eastern Caribbean. Some 4,000 people are temporarily living in 87 government shelters, while others have relocated to hotels or the homes of friends and family. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Ralph Gonzalez said today people need to strictly adhere to COVID-19 measures to avoid outbreaks. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, April 14th, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.